Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Wealth Podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Benjamin Hardy, who is a well-known author and psychologist, talk to us today about your personality and is it permanent, and also the concept of future self. So we hope that you enjoy, and please remember to check out our new website, www.weeklywealthpodcast.com. This is the Weekly Wealth Podcast with certified financial planner, David Chudik, where we discuss the wealth building mindsets and tactics that can help you to build and maintain wealth for you, your family, and your business. Treat today, we have um, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, and I'm actually holding up a copy of his book in front of the uh, camera today that I got at uh, Strategic Coach. And um, Dr. Hardy, actually, we're, we're going to talk just a little bit about where he went to school, but he's an organizational psychologist and a best-selling author of Willpower Doesn't Work. His blogs have been read by over 100 million people and are featured on Forbes, Fortune, CNBC, Cheddar, Big Think, and many others. He's a regular contributor to Inc. and Psychology Today. Uh, he has and is the number one writer in the world on medium.com. I think I'm the number 48 million uh, writer on medium.com. And he and his wife, Lauren, adopted three children through a foster system in February of 18. And one month later, Laura became pregnant with twins. Uh, another thing we have in common, I have twins. How old are your twins? 15 months old. Okay, well, mine are 12, so you'll survive. Um, <laughs> and they were born in December uh, of 18, and now they live in Orlando. So, Benjamin, it is awesome to uh, have you on the show. And um, uh, tell me where you, uh, where you did some of your graduate work, because uh, that's uh, in my backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like we got a couple connections as far as the strategic coach thing and <laughs> uh, as far as Clemson. Yeah, so I did my PhD in Clemson, um, which I guess is in your backyard. And uh, I love Greenville, love the Clemson, Seneca areas. And yeah, that's where my wife, my wife and I moved. We moved there from Utah and we, um, you know, spent four years there from basically August of 2018 to August, or sorry, August of 2014 when I started my PhD to August of 2018. And it was really in Clemson when I started writing and blogging. I'd never done that before, but it was in 2015 when my wife and I became foster parents. And that was when I got my website, when I started blogging. And then, you know, my entire time at Clemson, I was just doing school and rocking and rolling as far as the writing is concerned. I wrote, you know, willpower doesn't work while in Clemson. And uh, it's just an amazing period of our life. Very challenging, obviously going from zero to essentially three kids. But then my wife was pregnant when we moved to Orlando. So it's just a very interesting time of our lives, but uh, love Clemson. Always will have great memories there. So without going into too many details, the, the, the foster kids, were they, they were dealing with some challenges that you had to overcome probably coming? Well, I mean, from we've adopted them now, so we can go into whatever detail we want. Okay. <laughs> when they were foster kids, we couldn't have actually said anything because of the state, but when they are kids, uh, but, but uh, for just sake of um, respect. Yeah. So they came from a really terrible situation. Because the holes that some kids have to dig out of is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost impossible in certain situations without the resources and support that these kids need. And um, yeah, so we, we spent a lot of time, you know, near literally where you're probably at, which was in Oconee, South Carolina. We spent mm -hmm. countless hours in the courthouse of Oconee. And, um, but yeah, we got three kids. They were all siblings. Um, when we got them, they were seven, five, and three. Um, they're now 12, you know, 12, 10, and eight. But yeah, I mean, essentially they just grew up out in the middle of nowhere, basically, I think in a trailer with just parents who were on drugs and were just neglecting them. Uh, their mother, unfortunately, passed away um, 
probably like eight or nine months after we adopted them, she had cancer and other drug related problems. And so we actually came back to South Carolina, went to the funeral. And it was actually a good closure experience because we weren't really sure if we were going to adopt the kids. It ended up being very sudden. Um, there's a really brilliant attorney named Dale Dove in South Carolina, who's the number one adoption attorney in the state. And he actually, you know, several of his cases were at the state level, ended up changing the laws in South Carolina. And so once those laws were changed, giving foster parents more rights, we were immediately granted adoption unexpectedly. Uh, we didn't really know when it would happen. We'd been fighting the system for about three years to adopt the kids. Once we adopted them, um, you know, it was such a sudden adoption. We ended up moving pretty shortly thereafter. It was really good to come back up, go to their, their mom's funeral and just kind of have them kind of have a closure moment. So it was, it was very interesting, very interesting times for us, but you know, very good times. Developmentally just way behind where they should have been for their ages. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, all of them were, you know, emotionally underdeveloped and also, you know, intellectually underdeveloped, you know, but they, you know, part of having a better context or better situation is having resources. And so, you know, our kids went to Clemson elementary school for a long period of time, got private tutoring, lots of psychological help. Um, and we also, you know, provided them lots of support. They've got a good, you know, family structure now, good uh, extended family structure, lots of cousins, grandparents, you know, they've been on lots of trips for the first couple of years we had them. We, we traveled all over the country, you know, like as far as road trips and just showing them places, exposing them to new things. Um, you know, and little things really matter for kids, stability, having routines, you know, family meals, right. um, you know, just going to church, going to being enrolled in sports, right. Um, right. going to school, actually being in school and having friends, you know, and just having parents that invested in you. I mean, they've all, you know, obviously we all have problems and challenges, um, but I would say, you know, academically, they're all not only caught up, but, you know, advanced, you know, we've had them for five years now, you know, so I mean, they're, they've gotten, they've gotten so much support and they're, they're doing pretty dang amazing at this point. I mean, we, we still have our hiccups, but for the most part, we're pretty dang normal family. Sure. Well, and they're kids and they're, they're going to be crazy and they're going to drive you nuts at times, but it's interesting, you know, your, your, your last book, willpower doesn't work. You know, you can tell a kid just try harder, but kids that have gone through, you know, what, what your adoptive kids have gone through, you know, they probably just don't have resources or the ability until you provided it for them. And, and now, now, now they can, or at least to some extent, yeah, I wrote that book, honestly, because of the foster care experience. Obviously, I had a lot of psychological knowledge and background, and I had my own baggage and experiences. But, you know, yeah, you could tell a kid who has no parents, you mm-hmm. know, just work harder, mm-hmm. you know, like, sure. and they're just sitting in front of a TV, they have no comprehension or future or experience or knowledge. Yeah, go, go try harder. And right. Uh, right. You'll, you'll, wait, you'll work your way out. And that's just well, not really how it works. Context really determines options, choices, resources, ability. And so, you know, when you change their context or their environment, obviously they've got new options and new, new potential. Your potential as a person is not isolated. It's not, it's not fixed. It's not absolute. Your potential is very much based on your context. Um, And so when you obviously are proactive about that and surround yourself with the right people, the right information, the right knowledge, the right, you know, partners or team or family, uh, you've got a lot more resources and, and potential as a human being. Well, and I guess if you look at your, your three kids, um, they were, you know, had, had you not adopted them, where would they be right now? Would they, who, who knows, are they, are they even alive? Are they, are they failing school? Are they, you know, who knows where they would be in jail, you know, I mean, because of the resources that, you know, just a loving family provides. I mean, I think that's so, so important. And the other thing, you know, we're in the, in the quarantine stage right now. And you want, I worry about a lot of kids that are at home right now. Yes, they're not avoid, they're not uh, exposed to coronavirus, 
but you know the kids that don't have good support structures i just worry they're just about doing nothing them. with this time they're doing nothing probably nothing good <laughs> nothing good you know there are abusive parents out there and and there's just a lot that can happen while you're at home and not in school so um so yeah, yeah. So interesting stuff. So well, cool. We talk about money and 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 mindsets and uh, on this podcast, and we wanted to, you know, tap into some of your some of your genius and uh, talk a little bit about that. But um, you know, I've always heard, you know, we are hardwired. I'm hardwired to be this, or I'm hardwired to be that, or my, you know, I took a personality test when applying for a job, and it said that I'm this kind of a person. Is that true? Is that, um, t- talk to me about just that, that philosophy. Yeah, it's a very limiting philosophy. It's very non-scientific as well, but it's very pop culture. Um, so yeah, I would say that kind of common perspectives of personality, and this is not how psychologists view personality. Um, there's so much research that kind of goes against these philosophies. Uh, there's also common sense that goes against these philosophies. But yeah, I would say common views of, of personality are that it's innate, it's unchangeable, it's kind of hardwired, it's who you are. And because of that fact, your job as a person is to discover yourself. Your, your job is to discover who your true self is so that then you can build your life around that personality, you know, build your goals around that personality, build your job around that personality, build your family, your life. Essentially, it's about figuring out what kind, of, what kind of peg you are so that you can kind of build, you know, like whether it's a square or a round peg and just build your life around that. And, um, and so this is why personality tests are so popular is because their kind of claim is that they can tell you who you are. Um, and then once you kind of have discovered that reality, you can then be true to that self, which, you know, these tests, I mean, we can go into why they're not scientific and why they're destructive, but, um, and obviously there's a reason why people like them, you know, I mean, they give people a good sense of identity and a, a good feeling, even though it's a really shallow kind of fast food version. But yeah, this, this kind of mindset really leads people to being inflexible with trying new and different things. Um, just as an example, my 15 month old twins, since we live down in Florida, we, you know, most people have swimming pools down here, at least where we live. And, um, you know, our little girls are, are going to swimming lessons. You know, obviously right now it's a little postponed, but these girls are getting dropped in the pool and having to learn how to swim. Obviously that's a, that's a pretty intense learning experience. You know, it's like how many, how many of us would put ourselves through such a learning experience if we, if we had the option, we're, we're, we're not really giving these girls the option because we want them to learn how to swim so they don't get drowned. But people, when they grow up and they have choice over their own situations, they don't usually put themselves through such rigorous experiences on purpose. Uh, you know, we stop becoming open to new experiences. We stop putting ourselves through rigorous challenges and our lives become increasingly uh, routine. <laughs> and so it's not that our personality could, or our development could stop. It's that we stop putting ourselves through such experiences. That's, that's really interesting. So looking at a money, um, a lot of our, of our nation is in debt and, um, yeah. <laughs> Most um, you know, individuals that are in debt, you know, not a judgment. Um, sure. But um, it, it's typically over the long term, it's spending more than you make. Now, there are times where hard times hit and you maybe have to live off credit cards after your emergency r- fund runs out. But for the most part, people kind of just spend more than they make. So from a psychological point of view, how would you address that small, you know, monthly behavior of let's say, you know, a family's making $4,000 a month and they're spending 4,100. That's not a big deal this month, but for 50 months in a row, that's a big deal. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, I just can't help myself or I just like buying stuff or, um, you know, I'm just not a saver like, like other people. So how do you address that? Yeah, there's so much there. I love this subject. One of the challenges, so obviously you need to 
increase your earning potential, which comes through obviously having a better identity around money and letting go of limiting, you know, but even just you're describing, you know, decreasing your spending. Um, I, I think it really has a lot to do with people's, honestly, their vision and their goals and, and their values and priorities. Um, it's obvious that um, like we live in a consumer society. We live in a distraction society. Um, like the Corona situation is really kind of, hit me hard with the idea of like preparation for the future. So like from a psychological perspective, this may sound weird, but it's really difficult to have a meaningful present without a meaningful future. Um, so like in psychology, we talk a lot about the future self. Like there's a good Ted talk on this subject by a Harvard psychologist. His name's Daniel Gilbert. It's called the psychology of your future self, but I'll kind of explain it. If you, if you don't have a clear vision and this makes a lot of sense with business and money, but it's, it's crazy true with identity as well. If you don't have a clear vision of who you want to be and what that looks like, um, then it's very hard to make quality decisions today. Um, because if you don't know where you want to go or who you want to be, then it doesn't really matter who you are today. It doesn't matter how much money you spend. It doesn't matter how in debt you get because you're not, you don't, you're not really working towards a clear future. You're not preparing for something. You're not anticipating something. Um, and from a psychology perspective, anticipation is usually more powerful than the event itself. So like if you're thinking about like training for a marathon, um, you, you know, or even going on a trip, like a, like a vacation, it's often the anticipation and the excitement and the preparation that, is actually the more powerful experience than the event itself. The oh, event you, itself. You mentioned marathons, and I, I've done five of them, and and never never at world class pace. But my best one was respectable for an average person. And I remember thinking that the last hundred yards were going to be in slow motion, and I was going to hear the movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was so anticlimactic. I was like, I can't take one more step, and I, I wish I would have never done this. But all the training and and waking up early and 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 doing all that was really what the reward was in in a, in a lot of ways. So totally, yeah. And there's a quote from I guess it sounds like our mutual you know mentor of sorts, Dan Sullivan, who said, you know, the bigger the future, the better the present. That's actually very true. Like if you have a clear vision for your future, it actually you know your goal shapes your process. And so if you're very clear and committed on on becoming someone. Um, that, that, you know, there's a psychologist at um, UCLA. He spent a lot of time studying how a future self-concept influences your decision-making. And basically, it's really good for decision-making to, first off, have a clear future self, but also to, to see them as a different person. They're not the same person you are today. They're going to make different decisions, hopefully better decisions. Think about your future self if they're in financially a great situation. They're making great money. They make good money decisions. They would make different decisions than you're making today. And so if you make decisions based on what your future self in, in those, you know, more idealistic uh, circumstances um, would make, that allows you first off to have a better identity, but it also allows you to make better decisions here and now. Uh, it also allows you to spend your days because we have, you know, as you would say, we've got the rest of 2020. If you're actually preparing and anticipating and seeking a future self, the decisions you will make through 2020 are going to be fundamentally better. And if you do that for years, um, you know, your life's going to be different. So a, you know, obviously people come with money baggage, which needs to be resolved, which needs to be educated. You know, you have to unlearn a lot of negative stuff you're probably born with. If you're born into a family that, you know, you probably have the mindset of your family and your peers as far as money. Um, and so if you want to upgrade yourself financially, you probably have to unlearn a lot of that stuff and relearn better financial beliefs and have a better financial identity. Sure. And it's the same thing, whether you're wealthy, you know, wealthy people have just as many dysfunctional beliefs about money as, as poor people. Um, uh, I, I had a client totally, a few totally. years ago, this guy, he was, I mean, I felt so bad for, he was worth millions, but that money was a curse on him because 
uh, everybody was asking. He couldn't say no. And it just, so his money habits, uh, the only difference between him and, and, and the rest of us, he had more fun on the way down because there was more to spend on the way down. But, um, but, but no, uh, no question there. No question there. So how do people, I think in today's society, a lot of success is, is, you know, identity is based on how much money I have, or is my house bigger than yours, or I have a nicer car than you do, or, or you have a nicer car than me, so you're a more valuable person to the world. Um, talk to me a little bit about identity and money, and maybe even specifically for males, because I think guys, aren't we pretty wrapped up in, in our identity based on status, how much- Status, essentially. Status, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I think that, um, again, I'm more of the opinion that growth is a lot more important than status, and that, you know, status- Often, you know, you know, there, we, we, we often have motivation to seek a status, whether it's like be a millionaire, have this car or like have this house. But once you get the status, usually your motivation evaporates. And so it's better to be, be motivated by growth. Um, we're kind of of the opinion, at least of, in my family, that no other external success can compensate for failure in the home. So like we're, you know, like I'm part of some pretty amazing networks and like, you know, as far as like, whether it be entrepreneurs, marketers and things like that. And you know, I'm, I love learning. I invest in education. I invest in relationships. I invest, you know, in my family and my faith. I'm not as, you know, we have a great house, you know, we live in a nice home, you know, and I have like a separate home office. And so like, we're very kind of thoughtful about how we spend our money. Like I don't, you know, and this is not a diss on anyone who wants it, but like, I don't like have a fancy car. I don't have a Tesla. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have one. I'm just, most of my friends do, <laughs> or like a lot of my friends in these marketing networks do. And we're, you know, given that family, uh, you know, and we're, we're generally pretty conservative, um, but we, where we will invest in, in experiences, we'll invest in education, you know, like I'll, I'll invest a ton into myself. You know, you already mentioned strategic coach, like, um, I will invest a ton into myself, into my knowledge, into my future, into my kids' future, into our experiences, into our relationships. There's investments that are worth, you know, you can't really put a price tag on it. Um, but those things, those things can expand your identity in a good way because you can become more capable. But I do think that what you're describing is kind of often how people think of wealth, which is that you have status or stuff, which is more I mean, of a Do you comparison. ever get tempted to say, uh, you have very strong beliefs that you just described, but do you ever get tempted to say, man, you know, that, that other guy has a bigger house or that Tesla? I don't, no, I, I personally don't. Because for me, I think that that's kind of a low level psychology. Like I, I think I probably felt that way at one point, but I've kind of come to the realization that that's not really a great way to live. <laughs> like that, you know, that's not, it's not healthy as far as emotionally and mentally, but it's also not good financially. Like if you're always trying to spend your money to look cool to your neighbor, usually someone you don't even really care, you don't even really like, it's kind of like that quote, I think in Fight Club where he said, we spend money to impress people we don't like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> we spend right. our, all of our time and money and attention to impress people that we don't even really care about. And I think that it's a lot, I think that this is why it's important to have kind of guiding principles and perspectives is because, um, you know, you can realize first off, most people don't really care about you. Like, you know, the other person next, you know, your friends, you know, whether you drive a nice car or not, they don't really care. You know, they're worried about their own self. Um, but also long-term, it's really interesting. Like having been a part of some of these higher tier experience, you know, networks and even just being around people of wealth and success for a long enough period of time at this point, people really, care about character more than anything else. Even if they're in a status environment where they're kind of showing off their credentials, even if they're showing off their Instagram followers, 
at the end of the day, if you want really long-term transformational relationships, not transactional relationships where everyone's just kind of trying to prove themselves, real relationships, which lead to great collaborations, great opportunities, great learning, great meaning. Those are really based on character, trust, um, you know, good human being characteristics, which at the end of the day, people don't care what kind of clothes you're wearing or what kind of car you're driving. Like if you're a good person, they'll work with you. And if you prove yourself in that regard for a long enough period of time as a trustworthy individual, business opportunities and money will come like crazy towards you. And uh, so I think that that stuff ends up, I've had validated over and over again, that doesn't really matter what, what kind of car my neighbor drives or what kind of car my mentor drives. Um, they more care about who I am as a person, what I contribute to them. Sure, sure. No, that, I love it. But, but, but again, you know, if you have the nice car for the right reason or, you know, there's no, there's, there's right reasons to do car. it for yeah. sure. Yeah. But um, uh, what do they say? There's though? nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Nothing wrong with it. Sure. No. So as well, if we're talking about, you know, behaviors, whether they're money or anything else, I mean, how do we change behaviors? Um, you know, uh, nobody gets fat from one cheeseburger. You get chat, you know, you get fat from a couple hundred extra calories per day over time and nobody goes in the debt because of one purchase. Typically it's, it's um, you know, uh, it, it's it's daily or monthly overspending, and obviously, if it was just simple enough, hey, just don't don't snack, and you'll you won't gain weight. Well, that seems pretty simple, but it's not. So how how do you not snack? How do you not whatever that thing is for you? How do you not do it, or how do you do it if if it's yeah. Something so if you don't have a reason to do something, and if you don't have an environment supporting it then it's going to take willpower to do it. You know, like, so if, if I just told you to stop spending 300 bucks a month and you've been in the habit of spending the 300 bucks, if I just told you not to do it and there's no reason to do it, there's no vision, there's no context supporting that goal, then yeah, it's going to take willpower to do it and you're going to fail. Um, you know, just to stop doing something for no reason doesn't help. This is why you have to actually clarify your future identity and who you want to be. And then you have to obviously set goals and create an environment around that. Um, to support it. And, and, and part of that is actually shifting what's called your identity narrative, where you begin telling people about who you're striving to become. So like, you have to start telling people, be honest, you know, you've got to be blunt and honest. It takes courage to be honest. Um, so if you start telling people about who you were striving to be, that you were, if you literally start telling people in your life, look, I'm, I'm trying to become more financially su successful. Uh, I have in the past had money spending, you know, negative habits. I've spent money, but I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, I mean, you can create an environment of accountability, obviously speaking with your spouse or just friends and loved ones, um, but also actually having legit like people in your life. Like it may sound weird, but it's not weird actually. Like when I got, an, when I got a financial advisor myself um, and we started actually building a vision for my wealth and we started to put plans and strategies together, um, I mean, everything changed. I mean, I, I started saving on a weekly basis, as an example, like automated saving, automatic, even tithing as well, which I know we're not really going to go into, but like, um, you know, you have to have people in your corner and, and that's kind of investing in yourself, you know, so you shift from a cost mentality to a, uh, an investment mentality. But in order to do that, you need to actually have a goal and you need to start telling people about a goal. By the way, telling people about a goal is a behavior. If you start telling people about where you want to go, um, that, that solves a big amount of the problems. Now that's not going to solve all your problems. You'll still have a lot of the behavioral issues, but if you're telling people, everyone in your environment about the problems you're trying to overcome, like if someone was smoking and they started telling all their friends, look, I'm really trying to quit. Like, I really want to be this person where I'm healthy and I'm doing these. If they actually told everyone about that, like they would have an enormous more support when they fall off the wagon. And so if you start telling everyone 
about what you're trying to do, that's a big one. And then you do need to uh, start probably tracking and identifying the areas where you're falling short and then getting mentoring and support or, or, or just a higher accountability. Um, you might need to like literally restrict various behaviors. Like when people are addicted to certain things, you know, they need those things fundamentally removed from their environment. You know, you can't have alcohol in your house if you're trying to quit drinking. You can't keep going to the bar if you're trying to quit drinking. Like you might have to have your credit card removed from your person or something like that. You know, like there are sometimes desperate measures where in certain points of the day, you just don't have access. Like I know that people who are trying to quit like, you know, internet addiction, they have, there's websites for literally making various websites inaccessible during various periods of the day because with will without you know your willpower won't be enough you know so i think you need to if you're serious about it you need to create an environment and a situation where you can't fail right you know one thing that's always fascinated me is a lot of the people who are the most disciplined you know the way i would think about discipline in the world you know the great athletes the they all or not all but many of them have some pretty big moral failures because we can only try so hard and if you're putting all of your effort into that sport and, and your nutrition. And, you know, when it comes to the end of the day, whatever that other thing, for lack of a better term, that tempts you, you're going to give in. I mean, you just, it, it would be really hard not to give in to the gambling or the, the extramarital or the, or the, Interesting, the, yeah. the drinking or, or drugs or, you know, cause a lot of these super, super driven people end up having some pretty big failures. Now, of course they have bigger temptations as well. I mean, when you're, you know, pro athlete, you know, the temptations uh, are, are just bigger than just regular people um, like us, I think. So, um, but I guess there's also the ability for them to put some more roadblocks in place as well, because financially that wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a, a stick. Yeah, I mean, there's people, obviously there's really good examples and there's really bad examples sure. when it comes to celebrities. Sure. Um, but you've seen people who have chosen to have a vision in other aspects of their life outside of their career. And, you know, that includes their long-term money. I mean, you're right. There's countless examples of professional athletes who have made hundreds of millions of dollars and are bankrupt, you know, um, not, they weren't clear on the other aspects of their life. It took an enormous amount of vision to become a professional athlete and hard work. They didn't get that same support in the other areas of their life. And they didn't actually evolve themselves, you know, in a maturity sense to think about that. And so they were immature when it came to money. They were very mature when it came to their craft. Um, and so you have to think about the future of these things, you know, and, and there's good examples of that as well, where people got the support, got the stability around them and, and didn't fall to the traps that are so easy in probably those types of scenarios. So is it, am I discrediting myself if I label myself as anything, you know, I am, uh, you know, a lot of people say I'm an organized person or I'm not an organized person, or, uh, you know, I'm a social person, or I'm, I'm an introvert. Are those unfair? Or are those actually parts of our personalities that are changeable, but but just kind of ingrained? Is that does that question kind of make sense? It's a great question. It's a brilliant question, actually. Uh, labeling in general. So there are ways you, you there are ways to label yourself in a supportive way. For example, okay. if you want to just call your, you know, you can label yourself based on your desired future identity. For example, like, you could say, you know, like, I'm great with money. You know, that might not even be a label, <laughs> but like you can have reinforcing concepts. As an example, a friend of mine who for a lot of years wanted to be a writer, but never saw himself as one, he started calling himself a writer, you know, like literally started telling everyone he was a writer, created a website calling himself a writer and that led him. So that was like a positive example of using a label to achieve a goal. Um, but it's, it's not really wise to 
use labels as an infused aspect of your identity. Um, unless like this label is something that you genuinely believe will be with you forever. Like, you know, I know various people are like, I'm a Christian as an example, like they could say that, but like when it comes to stuff, like with your personality, where it's like, um, I'm an introvert, I'm an extrovert, you know, I'm organized, I'm disorganized. The, the problem with that is, is that it's not always true. So like, there's a lot of research that's happened at Harvard from a woman named Ellen Langer. She studied mindfulness for the past, um, you know, 40 years, honestly. She wrote a book called Mindfulness and a book called Counterclockwise, both highly recommendable books. But what she's found is, is that if you, you know, when you have a label or when you label yourself a certain way, you become mindless to all the times when the label is not true. Um, so basically what happens for us as people is we have what's called selective attention. We pay attention to the things that matter to us. It's basically tunnel vision. Um, so think about it. When you buy a car, you probably start to see that car on the road. You start to notice it, right? That's called selective attention. When you have a, when, when something is meaningful to you, you notice it out in the environment. What you don't notice is the 500 other cars <laughs> that wow. are actually on the road. Right. You just notice the one that's, oh, there's another Mini Cooper. I can say that because I have a Mini Cooper. It's like, oh, there's another one. Um, and so that is really the exact same thing that happens with our labels. If you call yourself an introvert, you're going to see yourself as an introvert. You're not going to notice all the times when you're actually being quite social. Um, you're not going to see all of the other cars. And, and those other cars are actually your behaviors. Um, and so they lead you to be mindless of, of the reality of the situation. Like in different contexts, your label is going to be different. You're not always organized. In some situations, you're actually just not. In, in, not, in, in all situations, you're not social. In some situations, you're not. Context matters more than content. Um, but also, the bigger, bigger problem with labeling is, is that if you've really bought into a label, then what happens is you, you, you go back to that idea where you're trying to build your life to support the label. You're, trying to, you're, you're literally setting goals to confirm your current identity rather than striving to become someone beyond who you are, rather than visualizing a, a future self, which is the core person you want to become. And by the way, there's a lot of research that talks about how the biggest regret on people's deathbed is that they didn't become who they wanted to be. They didn't have the courage to be who yeah. they wanted to be. Instead, they lived up to the expectations of those around them. So if you admit who you really want to be, then that should be the basis of your behavior, not your current label. So you know what's interesting? When you're a regular person and you tell a few people around you that I'm training for this marathon, 90% of people would say, oh, I could never run a marathon. And the thing is, if you're 20 to 40 something and your knees hold up and if you have six months, you can, you know, you, you can do it. Um, so it's not Absolutely. a superhuman thing, but there are people that just have these, and I guess I do in, in, in other ways as well, but uh, I could never do that. Um, and and it's, it's simply not true. But if you, if, if the person who's never run, if they vision themselves finishing that marathon, they can probably make it through it as long as their body holds up and, and everything else. I mean, do you agree with, with that just kind of in, in principle that uh, saying I could never do that is, is a horrible, horrible idea? It is. Yes. It's very much what's called a fixed mindset in psychology. And it's probably based on either a limiting environment or it's definitely a limiting identity. It, it is an identity. It's a story. That is fundamentally a story. I can't do that. That's a story. And then, so you got to ask, where did that story come from? It either came from beliefs you developed from your environment or experiences you had that basically were traumatic, even if it's like a small, small teacher trauma where it's like, you know, for example, kids can develop the belief that they can't learn math because, you know, so there's a lot of research on what's called math trauma. And it's basically like, you know, if a kid fails a test or if they're told they're not good at it, they'll, they'll develop an identity narrative where I can't do math, you know? And so you never know where these beliefs come from, but ultimately it's a fixed mindset. And yes, 
you can evolve your way out of it. It's really a reflection of a lack of confidence and a lack of vision. Um, and so, you know, how you get out. So there's a lot of research. I'm sure you and maybe your listeners have heard of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule, 10,000 mm-hmm. hour rule. Sure. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Well, that actually comes from research from a psychologist who's been studying high performance for the last three decades. His name is Anders Ericsson. And it's actually the 10,000 hour rule is actually not a rule. You, if you did something for 10,000 hours, that doesn't actually mean you're going to become amazing at it. You can do, we do a lot of things for 10,000 hours and we don't get any better at it. Right. <laughs> that's a long you know? time. Well, yeah, but you could, yeah, but if you do, if you just do the same thing over and over again, does that actually mean you're going to get better at it? No, it doesn't. Um, and so what Anders Ericsson's research shows is that, so he calls it deliberate practice. Um, and deliberate practice is different than just doing something over and over. You can go to the gym every single day, do the same workout and not get any stronger, fitter. You might even actually decay. So in order to actually go through what's called deliberate practice, which is actually going through a process that transforms you into someone new and better and more capable, you actually have to have a clear vision and goal. And then your process has to be targeted towards that goal. So if you go to the gym, you actually have to go through a workout that's getting you closer to a specific goal, whether that's like a weight amount, a speed amount, a physique amount. Like if you're not, if you don't have a specific goal, then your workout's going to be essentially lackluster and, and directionless. And so you have to have a goal to go through, a pro, you know, you have to have a goal to go through a process, process that's meaningful. And so this is why you would need, you know, for someone who doesn't believe they can do that marathon by simply setting the goal and then beginning to invest money in that goal, such as signing up for it, maybe getting a little bit of a coach or a workout partner, and then beginning to like learn how to train and then starting the training process, um, you'll start to have motivation and confidence. You know, you have to have a goal to have motivation. You have to have a path to getting there. And then you have to start to develop the confidence. I mean, once you develop those things, my yeah. training buddy and I, we had the NREF, the non-refundable entry fee. That was our kind of m- mantra. Yeah. Soon you write that $50 check, all of a sudden you have free time to go run. It's amazing. Investment creates commitment. Absolutely. Investment creates commitment. They call that the endowment effect. They also call it uh, escalation of commitment. Yeah. So yeah, if you start investing money into your goals, that's actually one of, one of the best ways to become better financially, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. to invest in goals. Invest in your future identity. Um, the investments I've made in my future are the, are the reasons why I, I now have a pretty dang good income and, and a better identity around money is because I've invested in myself and in my identity and also in my goals, you know, yeah. and that includes, you know, whether it be running a marathon or like getting a financial advisor or into my education or into my business. I mean, when you begin making investments in your future, you start to actually believe in that future. Yeah. And, and sometimes those investments need to be a little painful as far as, uh, you know, just getting started. And then that that's even, even more of a motivator. So well, that's awesome. This is just fascinating stuff. Um, I just, I love this. We could probably talk for a couple hours, but tell me a little bit about your book that's coming out and, and where we can get it and, uh, uh, you know, how, it, how this book can, can help people. Because I, I believe that the mind is just such a tool that works either for us or against us. And, and um, yeah, it seems like this is just great stuff. Put this way, your personality is in a lot of ways just a habit. Um, it's also a reflection of your comfort zone. Um, you know, if you're, every time you, you try something new, it usually takes a little courage or it's outside your comfort zone. Usually pe- most people's personality, it's just a reflection of their current comfort zone. So if you're not, if you don't see yourself as social, it's because being social is scary to you. Um, and you can evolve out of your comfort zone. You, ha- you know, in order to resolve issues from the past or in order to actually proactively seek a future, you've got to actually stop being who you've been and you've got to do new things. Um, it doesn't have to be as extreme as my daughter's swimming, you know, at age five, 15 months in the pool. But the more you actually step out of your comfort zone and, and that could include resolving issues from the past, or it could be practically seeking the future, you're going to change. 
uh, you'll have learning experiences your personality will develop. And if your personality has stopped developing, what that means is that you're stuck in the past, usually either from an environment or from a trauma or from a story. So anyways, this is, book is called Personality Isn't Permanent. Um, it really is kind of, in my opinion, the first book that's really explained what personality actually is from a psychological perspective. Um, it, it's not something that's just easily categorized by a test. And it's not something that's fixed. It's not something that's unchangeable. Uh, personality is different in every role that you're in. For example, right now, you're talking to me as a podcaster. You go home, you're in a role as maybe a husband, a father, a brother, uh, a business partner. In every role you're in, your role actually predicts your persona or your personality. Um, your environment does, you know. And so there's, there's things that you can do to become who you want to be. Um, and if you're proactive and if you design your future identity and then begin moving towards that, uh, your personality will change, develop, and grow in, in decided ways, not in random ways. So my invitation would be read the book. It's going to blow your mind. And uh, yeah, you can learn more about it at benjaminhardy.com, but also you can just kind of get the book anywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, Kindle, kind of wherever you prefer to buy books. Okay. And I'll put, um, I'll put the, uh, the link in the, in the notes. Um, one last question, and this is just, who knows if it's off the wall. If somebody had the choice of reading your book or any book and listening to a, a book on Audible or any other source, where do you think they would benefit more or would they benefit more from reading versus listening to a book? I think that's different for everyone. I think that you learn different things by listening and by reading. I think it's, 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 uh, it's easier to listen for most people just because of the high-paced society that we're in and people don't invest time to just sit and read. I think that if you read... Uh, and if you're like taking notes in the margins and things like that, you'll probably get more out of it. It's easy to just let a lot of the words just kind of slip through the cracks while you're walking or driving or, and so, but I, I think that if I would rather you listen than not do anything, um, you know, this book as an example, personalities and permanent, because it's such an introspective book, there's about, I think 150 to 200 journal prompts, questions oh, to wow. help you kind of reframe former experiences or visualize your future self or to just rethink things. And so this book is, I wouldn't say it's a workbook, but it's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of useful things you can do in this book if you read it like the actual book. But I would, I would say you could still have a transformational experience listening to books. I mean, I listen to books all the time. I listen to way more books than I read um, and I get a lot out of them. So that's not a good answer to your question, but I think reading is, if, if it's thoughtful, if you're not distracted, I think you could probably, I think you'd probably end up getting more out of reading if it was like intense, like actual active learning. But I think you could, you can still get the gist by listening if you're focused. Sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, I uh, would love it if you're ever up uh, visiting Clemson to give me a call and would love to, to connect in person. That would be awesome. Um, yeah. I know you're going to like something else, man, given that you're a strategic coach. Um, so me and Dan actually co-authored a book. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So Dan and I are good friends. And um, we have a book coming out in, in October of this year called Who Not How, which you've probably heard that concept. Uh, if you yeah, know. Well, that yeah so, so we, we have the, you know, I asked Dan about two years ago if I could write the book with him because I just thought the concept was so good. And it comes out in October with Hay House, which is obviously a good publisher. So Personality comes out in June. Who Not How comes out in, um, in October. If you want, I'll, you know, this is a kind of off the, off the rails, but I'll, uh, I'll let you read a pre-advanced copy. Awesome. Perfect. Well, good deal. Well, this, this has been fascinating. Uh, we could spend the rest of the day, but I think we, we both probably have some other things we need to get done. And I just really appreciate your time.
So I hope you learned as much as I did during that interview with Dr. Benjamin Hardy. I learned a lot about the future self-concept and how that can help me to make some of the changes that I need to make in my life and my relationships and my behaviors. Uh, Please check out Dr. Hardy's blog on Medium, uh, also his website, benjaminhardy.com, and I will also include a link to his new book, uh, Personality Isn't Permanent, on the show notes, and we wish you a blessed week. The information contained herein, including but not limited to research, market valuations, calculations, estimates, and other material obtained from Parallel Financial and other sources are believed to be reliable. However, Parallel Financial does not warrant its accuracy or completedness. The materials are provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. Past performance is not indicative of future results.